Welcome to the Post Talk Live podcast, where we host live salon gatherings for curious people around the world. Hosted by me, Susan McTavish Best. Hi, this is Post Talk's producer, Rob Perra. Today's episode is part of a three-part series focused on human flourishing. Hosted by Susan McTavish Best and Andrew Sarazen, president of Templeton World Charity Foundation. Enjoy. So thanks today, folks, for joining us for our second salon that uh, Post Talk is co-hosting with the Templeton World Charity Foundation. And Andrew Sarazen and I are uh, going to throw out some questions to Maria Konakova. Andrew, as uh, many of you know, is the president of the foundation. And Maria has a uh, fabulous resume of lots of writing. She is an author uh, of three books. Um, she's a journalist and uh, sort of inadvertently along the way became a poker player. And her most recent book, I'm never very good at doing this, is called The Biggest Bluff. And uh, it is her experience of becoming a, a poker player in her last two books. Uh, one was The Confidence Game and another Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, which I was reading this morning in bed. But anyway, thank you so much, Maria, for, for joining us. And the topic today is decision making. And I feel like all of us collectively around the world have had much the same decisions to make with regards to COVID and going out and risk and short term risk and, uh, and long term risk. But I thought maybe a, a good way to sort of kick off is to tell us how you got into uh, briefly tell us how you got into poker. Um, you were at a cruddy time in your life. And you found yourself playing poker. This is exactly right. Um, I went through a time in my life where basically nothing seemed to go right. Um, I got sick um, with an autoimmune disease. My grandmother died in a freak accident. My husband lost his job. My mom lost her job. Just one thing after another after another kept happening. And it made me realize um, that skill only takes you so far. And that chance has a huge part to play in life. It's not like I never thought about that before, but this was really something that um, brought it home. And well, so to be fair, your PhD was in decision making. As it was well, right? <laughs> <laughs> something called the illusion of control. So thinking that you're in control of things when you're actually not. So, so yes, I'd given a lot of thought to this, but it became personal and I wanted to write about it. Um, and poker became a way for me to explore these themes of skill versus chance and finding the limits of our control, learning to tell the difference, learning to maximize skill, learning to use variance to our advantage when it's on our side and to be resilient when it's not um, and to be able to get up and keep going when variance goes against us. And poker became kind of this metaphor for life. Um, I've never been a poker player um, and it's not something that I ever had any interest in. It was purely by chance that I, that I came across the game when I was <laughs> on Neumann's theory of games and economic behavior. And that's how I originally became interested in the topic because I thought, you know, von Neumann, one of the great minds of the 20th century, the father of game theory, which if you are interested in decision-making is kind of one of the key theories out there, um, that he was a poker player and thought that poker was not only the perfect way of looking at decision-making in life because 
he thought it was a game like life of imperfect information. So he thought that games like chess were actually horrible. Unlike chess, I was yeah. going to say, which you can, you know, you can game chess or yep. you can play against chess. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, chess is a lovely game, but it's a game of perfect information. There is always a right move. You can solve chess because everything all the information you need is out there. And life isn't like that. Life is a game of hidden information. It's a game of knowns and unknowns and trying to figure out where you stand and where your opponent stands and all of these nuances. And von Neumann believed that if he could solve poker, um, he'd have a really good rubric for just strategic decision-making in life, that he'd solve some of the most complex decision problems in the world. Poker, by the way, remains unsolved. Um, and so it's still, it's it's interesting to me that so many years later, it's still kind of the golden standard for AI research that a lot of the algorithms that AI researchers mm -hmm. are testing are being tested on poker to try to mm -hmm. figure out, okay, can we, can we beat this game? And so far the answer has been no. Mm -hmm. So you, you came to poker with a totally clean slate that is no experience, mm -hmm. um, and uh, which I think is, is interesting, right? Um, and then, but you went and sought out a mentor, which should we all be seeking out mentors? Can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to go seek out a mentor? Yeah, I think we should all be. That's part of your decision-making, that's part of your decision-making sure. process, right? Yeah. For sure. I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that I've, come to understand over many years of studying learning um, is that, well, it's all well and good to be self-motivated, and I am. I'm someone who is very motivated on my own. I don't need a lot of direction. You read three books. <laughs> I'm You're able to <laughs> kind of I'm able to work um, and push myself. I'm my own kind of harshest critic, but it's always incredibly valuable um, to realize your own limitations and to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, who are better than you, who can inspire you to be better. And when you're trying to learn something new, I think it's really important to have a good teacher. And so, I knew immediately when I decided to learn a new skill, poker, that I needed someone to teach me, that I needed someone to serve as a mentor, not to hold my hand, not, you know, okay, let's sit down and take, you know, give you lessons five days a week or whatever it is, but to serve more as a guide. And so I ended up getting incredibly lucky, talk about luck again, um, in that the person I approached um, Eric Seidel, who's one of the best poker players in the world, ended up being a phenomenal teacher and inspiration. I mean, people, when they've read the uh, the book, have called him, you know, a Yoda-like figure. And I think that that's very accurate. <laughs> and he was rational and, and not so emotional, which is oh, absolutely. in terms of decision-making. Well, well, I think... yeah. I think the one thing you learn in poker is that you, I mean, and that you learn when you're studying decision making is that if you want to be a good decision maker, emotional ain't the way to go. One of the things that Im impressed me, Maria, about um, the story in Biggest Bluff is just, is actually the level of humility you approached the situation with and, ha and how um, that, that must have been difficult, you know. Um, to sort of sort of humble humble yourself and, and kind of have the courage to go into to a completely new situation, 
with uh, some big characters that we meet along the way. Uh, I think you also talk about that in um, Mastermind as well. And one of the one of the things that Sherlock Holmes does is have this kind of approach towards new information and new situations. But I wondered if you could talk about humility in the role, how you felt during the process. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's just, it's always important to approach life with a lot of intellectual humility because I mean, there's just so much that we don't know um, and it's humbling. I mean, the world is humbling. Um, And one of the things that you learn is that the people who don't learn well, the people who have the biggest blind spots are people who are overconfident um, and who think they know it all. And that's the biggest kind of one of the biggest hurdles, one of the biggest points of stagnation for even incredibly intelligent people. That's something I do write about in Mastermind because I take Sherlock Holmes as this model for for thought um, and for mindfulness. And then he's this brilliant fictional uh, character, but um, Conan Doyle understood a lot about the human mind and he makes Sherlock Holmes fallible. And one of Holmes's Achilles heels is the fact that he does become overconfident. Um, He is so good. He's kind of best of the best. And so there's some plot lines where he makes huge mistakes, where he doesn't see his own blind spots, where he becomes complacent, where he doesn't have a good decision process, where he comes to premature conclusions, where he makes assumptions based on biases that he shouldn't make. Um, But the beauty of Sherlock Holmes and the beauty of a fictional character is that he learns from it and that he recognizes it. And then he says, you know, hey, Watson, if I ever do this again, um, hit me. <laughs> and, and I think that that's something that we should all aspire to. It's something that actually Eric Seidel embodies. If you ask him, you know, who are the top five players in the world, he would not name himself. If you ask him who are the top 10 players in the world, he would not name himself. Top 20, he probably still wouldn't name himself. Um, and he constantly says, you know, am I still competitive? Am I still good enough? Am I still, can I still play this game at the highest levels? And that's what keeps him good. That's what keeps him competitive. And you have so many, especially in poker, where you just have so much testosterone and so much male <laughs> ego or what I call in my book, big, big swinging dicks. I mean, they're they're all over the place, not just in poker, but in poker, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. Um, and it's on display and it's rewarded. But if you look at the peacocks of the game, they never last and they're not the best. People who, if you ask like a random person who are the three best poker players, they're going to give you three names. I'm not going to say anyone right now um, because I don't want to put anyone on the spot who no one who actually knows about poker would ever say those names as the best Mm -hmm. poker players. But everyone outside of poker thinks they're the best because they're the ones who are most capable of tooting their own horn Mm -hmm. and uh, projecting confidence. And one of the things that you learn very quickly is that projected confidence it's not the same thing as actually knowing. Um, My and- wife often says that there are two kinds of people. There are show horses and work horses. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you what she accuses which one of me. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps for the show horses, though, they're getting endorsements in other ways and they have a separate end goal than, uh, you know, than someone who's more serious about poker and quiet about it, right? I mean... Yes, but there are show horses in every single profession. And oftentimes if we're talking about decision-making, I would love to be able to change corporate decision-making so that Mm -hmm. humility is rewarded over 
panache. And that just does not happen. What companies get found, founded? Theranos. Because Elizabeth Holmes comes up with an amazing <laughs> origin story. And it's yeah. so damn confident. Black and <laughs> females and can also, though. yeah, They're females can also though. be big swinging clicks. And, you know, that's what people buy that. They buy the story, the aura, the confidence, and they don't dig deeper. And then someone who's who sits in front of you and says, hey, you know, I have this idea. Here are all the reasons why it might not work. Um, here are the reasons why, you know, I'm not not quite sure, but I think that there's something here. They're, they're out the door. They're not getting any money. The wrong people get funded. The wrong projects get money because you have to sell yourself well. You have to project confidence. And I just wish that people learned to make decisions based on actual data and based on actual rational things because everything else is emotional. It's, oh, this person, I trust this person. You know, this person's great. This person projects confidence. This is someone who's going to be a great founder. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's really not. Could you, you mentioned emotion. Sorry, Susan, I have a quick follow-up here. So you mentioned yeah. emotion there. And um, to what extent do you feel like, um, you know, emotions do provide valuable additional information in decision making or do you see emotions as as sort of uh fundamentally antithetical to sort of rational thought or 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 not it's a great question um the answer is it depends um more often than not they're they if you want to go to one extreme or the other if you're forced me to give you an absolute answer which i hate doing i would say get emotions out of there however um the truth is much more nuanced and sometimes emotions are incredibly powerful what you need to ask yourself is the following question is my emotion incidental or is it central to the decision that i'm making is it something that is actually coming from this decision or from some other source. And I don't even want to say nine times out of 10 because it's more like 99 times out of 100, it's incidental. It's mm. coming from the fact that I didn't sleep well. I'm hungry, I'm stressed about this thing. Um, it's raining outside, um, those types of things. You know, I'm angry because I just got into a fight with someone. These are all emotions that are going to be affecting how I'm feeling and how I make decisions. They have nothing to do with the decision at hand and I should not rely on them. Now, I'm not saying don't feel emotions. What I'm saying is become good at identifying the emotions in yourself, at asking yourself, where is this emotion coming from? And if the emotion is incidental and has nothing to do with the decision, at removing it from the decision process so that you can then realize, oh, this is a bias. This is something that is not actually part of the decision I'm making and I need to, and I need to step away from it. That said, there have been studies that have shown that emotion is incredibly powerful in certain situations where it can keep you from making really bad mistakes because sometimes the emotion is coming from the actual situation at hand. So if we look at people who have neural damage who actually don't appreciate risk, who have damage to the ventral striatum and can't really, um, don't associate anything negative with risk um, in certain experiments, they end up going broke because they don't experience any of the downside and they're like, yeah, it's great, let's take maximum risk. Mm -hmm. And so clearly sometimes emotions are important. And if you can't, feel that negative emotion in the right moment, you're going to make bad decisions. But 
that's usually not the case. And usually our emotions are coming from all sorts of different places. And so we just need to add them as one more check to go through when we're looking at is my decision a good decision? Is my decision a solid decision? I mean, in poker, there's even a term for this. It's called tilt, letting your emotions seep into your decision-making process. And everyone tilts. You just need to figure out how you tilt and how it affects your decision-making and uh, to try to do your best to even yourself out, so to speak, to get those emotions um, out of there because normally they're not telling you much. And I hate when people say, you know, oh, but you know, it's my gut. Um, I say, you know, screw your gut. Um, your gut is the absolute worst way to make a decision um, because what psychology shows is that we have really, really strong gut feelings um, and they're equally strong whether they're right or they're wrong and we have no ability to tell the difference. So in study after study, people are 50-50 at figuring out whether their gut mm. feeling is right or wrong. So we mm. suck at it. And so it, the, the thing that I always say is the only time you should trust your gut is when it's not actually your gut, when it's not actually intuition, where really it's experience that you don't necessarily have conscious access to. So if Eric Seidel, who's played hundreds of thousands <laughs> of hands of poker and thousands of hours of poker, if he says, you know, I feel like this person's doing this, and so I'm going to act accordingly, he might not verbalize it because he's actually never taught anyone other than me. Um, and so he doesn't normally go through that thought process. That's not his gut. That's expertise. And that's just knowledge that he has access to because he's done this so many times. For the vast majority of us, um, if you're in a situation, just ask yourself, am I an expert here? And if do I have a reason to be an expert? If the answer is yes, then okay. Maybe emotion, that gut feeling can help. Um, but if the answer is no, as it usually is, then say, okay, no, I don't care what my gut is telling me. Instead, I should look at the data look at the actual observations I have, look at the actual information in front of me and use that to make my decision. It's hard. It's easier said than done. <laughs> mm. Sometimes, I, and you write about this in your book and you were playing poker. What's the percentage of men who play poker? 98. Okay, okay. So 2% women, you were mostly playing with men and uh, you grappled with this, I think, initially and women certainly do. When it comes to making a decision, women often don't want to be seen as hard or being seen as a bitch and uh, you mentioned Theranos, which was obviously run by a, a woman, but she was pitching to a lot of men and she did not have this issue at all. Nope. Um, how, <laughs> how can women overcome uh, that feeling of not being wanted, w wanting to be seen as unfeminine or nasty? It's how do you really, overcome it, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really difficult. I mean, I overcame it through poker because I was losing mm -hmm. money. Um, and okay. it's very, very easy to um, make behavioral changes when you actually have immediate feedback and money on the line. Right? You have monetary skin in the game. value. Right? Exactly. When you actually have skin <laughs> in the game. But what I will say is tread carefully because I, the reason we internalize these lessons is because internalizing them 
normally is rewarded. So I wrote about this for the New Yorker a while ago, and unfortunately, nothing has changed. Um, I wrote a piece about negotiating while female, and all the research shows that the same things that are rewarded in men are usually penalized in women. So in the real workforce, women who are who do stand up for themselves and who are assertive and who do manage to kind of not care whether they're liked or not, but make the right decisions and do the right thing and be firm, they're called bitches and they're not promoted. And they're said, oh, they're so hard to get along with and all of these nasty things. And while a man doing the same thing is applauded and said, oh, he's, he's a great leader. He's someone I want to see as the head of a company. And it's really, really difficult to overcome that divide. So poker, the good thing about poker is that it does not matter if someone thinks you're a bitch or not. It's actually the most meritocratic thing I've ever seen, the most meritocratic environment I've ever encountered. Because if you play well and make good decisions and are aggressive in the right ways, then you make money. That's that's it. Nobody, if someone hates you, that doesn't matter. If someone doesn't think you're pleasant, it doesn't matter. None of these things matters. All that matters is how you act. Um, and I do think that I have become much better able to assert myself outside of the poker world um, because I learned just how much of a pushover <laughs> I can be uh, while playing poker. But I still, um, I still have to tread carefully. And I think women do in general. I'm lucky in that I don't work in a corporate environment. And there's a reason I don't because I don't like to deal with any kind of BS. Um, and so I, you know, I work for myself. Um, and if people don't like me, that's fine. They don't have to work with me. But for a lot of people, that's bad advice. Um, and mm -hmm. if you are in the corporate world and looking to be promoted in the corporate world, you have to look at the research and you have to realize that, yeah, it sucks. It's not fair. But so far, you know, the world does not reward the same characteristics, the same presentation in women as they do in men. By the way, Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, I'm willing to bet any amount of money she would not have gotten funding if she were not attractive. I'm just going to oh. put that out there yeah. because <laughs> that, that covers all matter of sense. All of a sudden, um, she's and able. And blonde hair. <laughs> and, and I think that that, um, I think that that actually matters. And we need to say things like that out loud because otherwise they're not going to change. And, and you, you would feel that, you know, in other seemingly meritocratic environments like, like finance or. Um, oh my God. Finance is the least yeah. meritocratic environment in the world. Are you kidding? At least you have, well, <laughs> no, but at least you have market signals at the end of the year. So whether you've performed or not. Right. So, yes. But those market signals actually have nothing to do with whether someone is good or not. Daniel Kahneman has found when he worked with hedge funds and when he worked with different investment firms that there is very little correlation as to how good someone is with their year performance because they're, the correlation from year to year is almost non-existent. And so people get rewarded as superheroes when they're actually pretty bad traders. Sure. It's a, it's a random walk down Wall Street uh, yep. uh, sort of arguments that, you know, past performance does not predict future. It does not. For the, for the vast majority of people, there's like a, you know, there's a tiny, tiny percentage of people um, who are 
who are actually good year in, year out, but that's very rare. And so in finance, it's actually incredibly not meritocratic because the stock market, there's enough randomness that if you like someone, you can always excuse reasons why they didn't do well. So I'll give you an example. A hedge fund manager has a really great, you know, starts off really hot in his career, um, gets lots of money, launches a hedge fund. The hedge fund goes bust because it ends up that the manager is actually not very good. That same manager is able to raise another huge hedge fund because people just remember the beginning and say, oh, he just got unlucky. Goes bust again. Same hedge fund manager gets a third, gets a third hedge fund. And someone who actually was kind of less flashy, but more solid gets zero. This has happened. I'm not, again, not going to name names, but this has happened over and over and over. Um, so I am actually, I think that the stock market's one of the easiest places to be overconfident and to have a very big disconnect between um, how good someone is and how well they're rewarded. How do, uh, how do we avoid groupthink when it comes to making decisions? Um, I think that it's very important to think for yourself first. So one of the things that that a lot of studies have shown is that groups come to much better decisions if the questions that are going to be raised at meetings are actually raised individually first. And if everyone writes down going into the meeting what they think, um, so then people actually... Bosses, right? yeah. For bosses of companies to create an environment where the employees feel like they can ask questions, therefore make better informed decisions. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that it's really also important to do things like write down, actually ask people to think things through and write them down beforehand, before any discussion is held. Um, that way, it's often the case that you can avoid just someone who is dominating a meeting, um, ending up as the person who um, just carries the day by virtue of being first or being loudest or being most eloquent. Um, and good ideas do have much greater chances of flourishing um, if everyone first thinks individually and then comes together. And there's a lot of great data on that. The, um, uh, while we're on the topic of like group decision-making, um, could you, I don't know if you, you want to talk about sort of composition of groups and how, perhaps um, you know, greater diversity in perspectives, uh, what, what data show kind of how team performance varies with according to um, kind of the, the diversity of inputs and, and what, what makes for, you, you mentioned one sort of strategy to make better decisions as a group, but uh, any others to share in terms of yeah, I mean, I do think that diversity of opinions is great. I think diversity of backgrounds is great. I think um, we do need to be aware of the fact that we like people who are more like us um, and who have similar backgrounds. And we tend to surround ourselves with those people because we think they're smarter and we think they're actually better. And it's a, it's a big blind spot. Mm -hmm. And so I think that trying to fight against that and trying to foster diversity and trying to go um, against kind of some of those biases is something that often leads to better quality of decisions and also not being, um, not thinking that you know what's going to be good in this particular area. Oftentimes the greatest innovations and the greatest breakthroughs um, in decisions come from people who come from external fields and other backgrounds and things that you just never considered. So I would say, you know, one of the greatest strengths you can have as a leader, as a boss, as a decision maker is to stay open-minded and not think you know what's going to be good. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know we just had a, a brief time to chat with you. So I made a couple of notes of, to remember to, to ask questions, find a mentor and approach life with humility, which uh, seems a good way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, folks, here is Maria's book. When is, your, when is the paperback coming out? Um, I am not sure. Um, it may be June, but it may not be um, for a little bit for a little while after that. We don't have the firm date yet. Okay, well, perhaps we can do a salon in person in New York or something. That would be, a that would be wonderful. Fun. And then I'd get to cook for you. So thank <laughs> you so much for joining. Thank Take you care. both. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Post Hoc Digital Salon with Susan McTavish Best. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a great review. It really does make a difference. If you don't already, please make sure to follow us on social media. That's at McTavish Best on both Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for attending our digital salon.